0: The last Sunday of last year, December 28th, we were looking at uh, John chapter 14, where Jesus said, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. And at that time, I said, when we're finished with our series in the book of John that I do a short series looking at what the Bible teaches about the subject of heaven. We finished the Gospel of John three weeks ago. Two weeks ago, our worship service was devoted in its entirety to the observance of the Lord's table. Last week was Father's Day, and so today I make good on my promise of exactly six months ago to have a short series on the subject of heaven, and I'm titling this series, "Heaven." sweet home. As you can see at the top of the screen, we're going to spend four weeks in this series. And then following that four weeks, you're going to hear from our pastors in training guys for four weeks. On July 26th, we'll hear Brother Zach Hamilton. On August the 2nd, Brother Matt Owen will bring the Word of God to us. On August the 9th, Larry Castle is going to preach to us, but also give a report and probably some testimonies about the just at that point completed uh, teen leadership uh, retreat that they're going to have at the end of July, and then Brother John Veldes on August the 16th will bring the Word of God to us. Then on August the 23rd, we'll begin a thematic series through the book of Hebrews that will keep us out of trouble through at least the end of the year. So I know many of you keep track, actually none of you keep track, but just in case there's somebody who does, that's where we've been and that's where we're going. So today we begin a four-week study of heaven and why should we study heaven? Well, for at least two reasons. One, not enough people know what the Bible says about heaven and frankly, not enough Christians care about heaven. Now the reason that not enough of us know the truth about heaven is because We probably don't teach it as much as we should, and so I hope to remedy that, at least in part, with this short series. But why don't more American Christians care about it? My theory is, we're too comfortable here. And I say American Christians because believers in other parts of the world, where they face the reality of persecution, and they willingly suffer for the cause of Christ, they care deeply about this topic. Pastor John MacArthur says this about that particular issue. Christians in less affluent and less comfortable cultures than ours tend to think more about heaven because it promises things so different from what they have known in this world. On a recent trip to an isolated city south of Siberia and on the backside of Tibet, I met with 1,500 impoverished Christians who had suffered greatly under Russian oppression for three quarters of a century. They were children of exiles, economically deprived, working hard daily just to find food. And they wanted me to teach them from the Bible, and the subject they most desired to study was their future in the glory of heaven. I had the privilege of doing that for several hours, he says, and many wept with joy. We don't tend to think much about heaven, in part, because we have it okay here, economically. But I fear we also like it here more than we should because we become desensitized to sin. And so we fit in. And we feel at ease. We feel at home. But hear this, brothers and sisters. This really is not our home. The Bible calls us aliens and strangers. And it speaks of our time here as a sojourn, as a a journey of a relatively brief period. This is not the world for which we were made. And we must constantly be vigilant to remember that, lest we be comfortable when we're supposed to be strangers in a foreign land. We should be like Abraham. Who the writer of Hebrews tells us was looking for a city with foundations whose builder and maker is God. But instead, too many of us are living here like we plan to stay. And I put in my notes, repeat that. Too many of us are living here like we plan to stay. We are putting down very deep roots here. We care very much about our retirement years and planning for all of that. It's all wise if done proportionately. If done with God's kingdom and God's ministry and God's mission in mind. But think about how we'd be affected in the present... If we indeed had a perspective that was looking to the future, how would we view material possessions, for example? Well, we would follow what Jesus said, would we not? Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6? Do not, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now by that measure, where are our hearts? And I, and I say my heart as well. Where are the hearts of American Christians that God has called to be sojourners, aliens, and strangers in a foreign land? And when we begin to become less enchanted with this world. We will tend to live and long for the next world. When your health begins to fail. Ah, now you begin to think about heaven. When you endure the pain of losing a loved one. You begin to think about eternity. When you're suffering because of your stand for Christ you begin to think about heaven. When you see the sin and the degradation that's in the world, you begin to long for the world for which you were made. When you remember that you are physically separated from your Lord and will one day be in his presence, you desire to be where he is. But we're not always in those difficult circumstances. And we're not always focused on those things. And so scripture has to remind us by way of command. Colossians chapter 3. Set your hearts on things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above. Not on earthly things. Paul that supremely devoted follower of Jesus who wrote 13 of the 27 books in your New Testament, including the one we'll consider today, 2 Corinthians. Paul did not need much prodding to long for heaven. You see, he was not wrapped up in this world. And he often found himself at odds with the world. Just look back at what he says in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. Just look back one chapter. Beginning in verse 8, note what he says We are hard pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Verse 13, it is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore we speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that's reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. So, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. By the nature of his commitment and his circumstances, the great apostle was focused on the next world. The one for which we were made. And yet we don't have those circumstances and we don't have, let's be honest, that level of commitment. Therefore, we forget and we become comfortable. And today, let's begin to think about why it is we should look to heaven. Why it is we should think about eternity And not just time. Paul was willing to be spent in the present. Because he was confident of heaven in the future. He was as we should be. And I've titled this message. Mortgaging the present. We sometimes say so and so is mortgaging the future. Paul says I'm mortgaging the present. For the future. And that's the mindset that we are to have as well. We're going to see from 2 Corinthians 5 verses 1 through 10 that confidence in life after death brings significance, purpose, importance to life before death. Things that are yet future and of which we by faith are confident will change our perspective of the hardships and the difficulties that are caused by ministry and the fulfillment of our duty for the Lord. It may be that in this life we minister for the cause of Jesus Christ and we may be shamed and we are despised. And yet, like the apostles who were beaten by the Jewish religious leaders, the Sanhedrin. But then they went out, you remember it says, rejoicing that they were counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Now, why is that? Because through faith we see the glory of the future spilling over and coloring today's work with the brilliance of things eternal. Future hope brings glory to present ministry. And that's why I say in the first point of your outline, we should invest our lives in the future. Because as Paul tells us in chapter 5, we have the hope. Of a new body. In chapter 5 Paul's discussing his perspective on ministry. Both his and the Corinthians and by extension ours. He's discussing his perspective on ministry. And now he interjects this truth about our present mortality. That's going to give way to future immortality. And he's introduced this back in chapter 4 verses 16 through 18. Which we've already read. Where he discusses the fact. That we focus upon what's eternal, that which is unseen, in order to steal our resolve in the here and now, in the present. And now in chapter 5, he's going to describe part of that unseen thing, upon which we are to focus in the here and now. I say in your outline that we have a future prospect, and it's this. We shall be immortal. Verse 1. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Now you remember Paul's line of work. Though he was a teacher, though he was a preacher, he was a missionary, he had been trained as a tent maker. There was an old Jewish proverb that says, he who does not teach his son a trade teaches him to be a thief. And so Jewish fathers sought to teach their sons a a trade they can make a living with their hands. And so Paul, though he was highly educated, was trained in the common work of tent making, and he draws upon that background to make this illustration of our mortality. He says this body is like a tent. It's something that's frail. It's easily dismantled. Pull up a couple of stakes, the whole thing collapses. What a description of human frailty. And the frailty of the human body. But notice the contrast. In verse 1, he contrasts a tent to a building. One is a temporary dwelling, one is a permanent dwelling. And he describes this tent and building. One's eternal and heavenly, that's the building, the permanent, the other is temporary and earthly. Our existence in this frail body, in this tent, is frail and temporary. There's not a single person sitting here or standing here who's not one heartbeat away from death. What Paul would call the dismantling of the tent. And friends, do you understand that the tent will one day change? (laughs) I'm looking forward to having a new tent. I've got a picture out of a magazine that I'm going to give to God and say, how about this one? We're looking forward to a new home, a new dwelling place, a new body, not one that is made with hands. It's describing this idea of not made with hands in verse 1. It's describing something that's not part of the natural created order, something that's supernatural. It transcends the created order. We're looking forward to an immortal body that's not part of the normal created order. It's supernatural in its character. That's our future Prospect: We will be immortal. But in verses 2 through 4, Paul, who wrote this as a realist about the present problem, we have this future prospect. We will be an immortal, but in verses 2 through 4, we have a problem in the present. We are mortal. Verse 2. Meanwhile, we groan. Now, it's not referring to the noises that we make when we get out of bed in the morning, though it is a related problem. There's this sense of longing, groaning, a desire to move from mortality to immortality. There is pain as we see the reality of our condition in this world. We groan, verse 2, longing to be clothed with our heavenly body, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Now, it means this, that there's not a longing to be disembodied. In the next couple of weeks, I'll deal with an ancient heresy called Gnosticism that taught that the body is the prison house of the soul, desiring to get out of the body. The truth is our bodies are going to be raised, but they they will be changed. And Paul is saying, I'm not longing to be disembodied, but rather to have a transformed body. We're longing for a time when there will be no more frailty of this human existence. No more prospect of death looming over us. No more struggle with the flesh. And I don't mean our bodies. I mean the sin nature. We groan under the effects of sin. But there's coming a day when the effects of sin will no longer be able to touch us. Thanks be to God. And I think in this passage there's a hint of longing to go through this transformation, without going through death. Because Paul says this, For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. And the word clothed literally means to be clothed upon, as though you're putting one garment over another. And so Paul would have liked, as you and I would like, to have our new body, Given to us, just as it were, a garment placed over the old one in a transformation. I'd like to have the new body imposed on the old one without having to pass through death. But either way, mortality will be swallowed up in immortality. And this is because in verse 5, God has an eternal plan. God has purposed our immortality. Verse 5, now it is God who has made us for this very purpose. If you're here today as a believer in Jesus Christ, understand that the very reason you were born was that God in his grace might bestow his salvation on you and that it would result in resurrection life. In Romans chapter 8, Paul, who wrote Romans 8 as well as our passage, mentions the same truth that the whole creation groans, longs for, desires that transformation. And he summarizes the work of God by saying famously, We know that in all things, and we sometimes take Romans 8.28 and we embroider it, we cross stitch it, we hang it in our homes. That's great. It's a great life verse. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. But Romans 8.28 is in the midst of the context of Romans 8. And it comes just after Paul describing the whole creation groaning. And then after that, he's going to talk about famine and persecution and nakedness and sword. And none of these things can separate us from the love of God Which is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the midst of that. We know that in all of that stuff. The groaning. And the persecution. And the death. And the nakedness. And the difficulty. We know that in all things. God works. For the good of those who love him. Who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew. He also predestined. Those he predestined. He called. Those he called. He justified. And those he justified. He justified. He also glorified. Now notice the tenses in all of those. They're all past tense. God predestined and he called and he justified and he glorified. And as I pointed out to you a number of times, three of those four have already indeed occurred in the past. If you've come to Jesus Christ, you've been predestined in eternity past. You've been called and justified in the present when you heard the gospel message and you responded to it. But you're not glorified yet, but God says past tense. Why? It is in the mind of God as good as done. And so we can look forward to that immortality that will swallow up our mortality with great confidence. God has purposed our immortality. And verse 5 goes on to say that God has guaranteed our immortality. Notice verse 5. It's God who's made us for this very purpose. And has given us the spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. If you have the spirit, you have then this as evidence. A deposit, a guarantee that you will have this future immortal life. So how do you know if you have the spirit? When I was growing up, I grew up in a Pentecostal church. Most of you know that. And the evidence I was taught that you have the spirit is that you performed a particular thing called speaking in tongues. If you spoke in tongues, you were baptized with the Spirit, we were told. If you did not speak in tongues, you did not have the baptism of the Spirit. Which, it turns out, means you're not saved. Because also in Romans chapter 8, the Bible tells us that anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. And so, if you belong to Christ, you have the Spirit. And the question is, how do you know? And it's not through some phenomenon like speaking in tongues. But rather, if the Spirit has given evidence of His presence in our lives by creating change in those lives. When we evaluate our lives and we see that we've embraced the truth... And that salvation is evidenced by change in our lives. The Bible says the Spirit internally bears witness that we are the children of God. And there's nothing mystical about it. It's all based squarely on what we understand from the Word of God. And when that's true in our lives, the Bible tells tells us the Spirit serves as our deposit guaranteeing then our future. The word that's translated deposit means, as you might expect, a, a down payment. Now, in their legal system, just like in ours, if you placed a down payment on a home or on a car and you change your mind, you don't get your money back unless the person who holds the money is very gracious. The point is the down payment is forfeited if you back out on your commitment. and That's the image here. Now, God has said, I'll do this. I will bring my children to the point of immortality. In order to guarantee that, I'm giving you the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And if I could back out on my commitment, I would forfeit my down payment. Think about that. If God the Father could go back on that promise, he would forfeit the down payment. But the down payment is the Holy Spirit. And so here is a member of the triune God. And the very notion that God could forfeit the down payment of the Holy Spirit is unthinkable. The word translated deposit in modern Greek is now the term for an engagement ring. A man gives a ring to a prospective wife saying in effect this, I commit myself to culminating marriage. And that's the image here then. This is the surest guarantee. And so Paul put it this way in Philippians chapter 1 in verse 6. I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So what are the implications of this absolute biblical truth? That our mortality will be swallowed up in immortality. Well, The truth of the matter is, living for Jesus Christ and serving in the ministry of the gospel, would you not agree, is not always a bed of roses. God calls upon you and upon me to make sacrifice. Difficulty attaches itself to gospel ministry in the midst of a fallen and sinful world. We're called upon to lay down our very lives, to invest our lives in gospel ministry, and that often brings with it suffering. But Paul says, understand, this life is not all there is. We're called to lay down life, investing it in ministry, but we look forward to a new life. And it's because of the resurrection and its promise that we can, with joy, invest briefly on this ball called earth. In the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, briefly, light, momentary, compared to eternity. We should, friends, invest our lives in the future because we have the hope, the confident expectation of a new body. Now, more quickly, look at point two. We should focus our affections on the future. Because we have the hope of a new home. Verse 6. Therefore we are always confident and know. That as long as we are at home in the body. We're away from the Lord. We live by faith not by sight. We are confident I say. And would prefer to be away from the body. And at home with the Lord. And so Paul now with this deposit of the holy spirit guaranteeing what's going to come in the future expresses his confidence and he makes a contrast between life in the body and life with the lord and he interrupts himself in verse seven as paul is wont to do and so in verse seven it's kind of like a parenthesis in the sentence he says confident and we know that as long as we're at home in the body we're away from the lord then picks up that same thought in verse eight when he says again we are confident i say And we prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Here's what he's telling us. The future home is to be preferred because of the presence of Jesus. Why should I prefer the home in the future to the one I have now? Because that's where Jesus is. Now understand, in this context, this future home is not talking about your mansion over the hilltop. In a couple weeks, I'll talk about where we got the notion of mansions over the hilltop. Our future home is not talking about that. It's talking about the new body, but the thrust of the passage is upon the presence of Christ. And Paul says in verses 6 through 8, Essentially, look, as long as my home is this body, I'm away from Christ. I would much prefer to be away from this body and in the presence of Christ. And so we should focus our affections on the future because of the hope of a new home, a home that's in the presence of Christ. And so why should we focus on heaven if we do focus on it at all, as I said at the beginning? The truth is most of us don't. We have many reasons to focus on heaven, not All of them bad. Sometimes we contemplate the beauty of the heavenly city. No doubt we think about the presence of loved ones who are already there. Often we think about the end of our struggles on earth. But ultimately our desire for heaven must be the presence of Jesus. He should be our delight. He must be our joy. He should be our anticipation and our prospect of satisfaction. That's why John ended the last book of the Bible. Second to the last verse in the entire word of God. Expresses the longing of God's people. Even so. Come quickly. Lord Jesus. And if our focus is anything else. Then our affections, friends, reveal our selfishness. When I think about the preoccupation. Of the people of God. With the things of this world. It saddens me greatly. You guys have heard me say this before. But it's just a very searing statistic. Americans spend more money on dog food. Than on missions. I got nothing against dogs as I've said. And if you've got a dog you should feed him or her. But your dog and my dog if heaven forbid I ever had one. You know, I'm sorry but just don't mean nothing in light of the mission. Comparatively speaking. What if, just dream for a second, just what if our young people instead of spending their time wasting it away on games And frittering it away on frivolous pursuits gave those young, vibrant, strong bodies to the mission. What if those of you who have raised your children, instead of looking forward to now golfing every day, use that time, as I am so glad to say so many of you do in that circumstance in this place. But use that time to say, Lord, you've given me this time. You've given me these resources. I'm going to invest them in heavenly treasure. What if those of us who have children still at home said, this is what we're going to do with those children. We're going to model before them a commitment to Jesus. A longing to be with Jesus. A holding in our hands the things of the world with a very loose grip. And we're going to train those young people to follow our example. And to be missionaries for Jesus. Whether here or whether abroad. To follow in the footsteps of their mom and dad. Doing that and loving every minute of it. What if we did that? How cool would that be? How Christian would that be? How biblical would that be? How God-honoring and glorifying would that be? We're going to pray in just a bit. We're going to finish soon. We're going to have opportunity to commit ourselves to that very thing. This prospect of a future home with Christ is a matter of faith, verse 7 tells us. We live by faith and not by sight. This is Paul's parenthesis. He's explaining, first of all, that a home in the presence of Christ is seen by faith. We live in a very, per- a very perverse time. When we can transfer the confidence in the unseen and in the person of Christ to the seen and the things that fill the affections of this world. I heard about a radio preacher, you know, one of those health and wealth and success types. And he was reading from Hebrews 11 and verse 1. And he said, and I think I have it for you, faith is the substance of things hoped for. But he read just part of the verse. He said, faith is the substance of things. So let's stop there. And then he began to preach a message on how if you have faith, you'll get things. Do you all know that a text without a context is just a con? And always bear that in mind when you hear anybody, including me, give the word of God. The text must be placed in context or it is simply a con. And our focus must be upon the hope of a new home in the presence of Christ. And it's seen by faith. And this faith translates the unseen into confidence in the service of Jesus in the present. And so Paul says, therefore, we're always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. But, oh, one day we'll be with him. And that's my preference. And so that shapes all of reality for me, says Paul. Not only is this new home in the presence of Christ seen by faith, but it produces faith. He says we live by faith and not by sight. We see the future by faith, but I think here he's echoing the Old Testament Habakkuk, repeated three times in your New Testament, the quote that says the just will live by faith. He's saying we live in the present by faith because we Have this confidence. It produces faith. That produces faithfulness. Faithfulness then. Is the characteristic mark of the believer. Confidence in unseen reality. Changes all of life. For the believer. And then in verses 9 and 10. Finally. We should do this. We should defer. Self gratification to the future. Because of the hope of a new reward. Verses 9 and 10. We make it our goal to please him. Whether we're at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body. Whether good or bad. I think you all would agree that we live in a time. That previous generations did not know they had to defer gratification because they couldn't get what they wanted right now. But we live in a time where it's right now, and right now is too late. And so we don't know how to defer gratification. But we as Christians, having a different perspective, must learn to defer our gratification until the time when we've done our work on earth and we stand before the Lord and we receive our new reward. Our goal is to please Him. And that excludes everybody else. It's not to please anybody in comparison to Jesus. We want to love everybody. We want to please Jesus. Even in the way we love everybody. Pleasing Jesus defines the way we express our love. Pleasing Jesus defined, defines the way that we go about our ministry. Because we are always looking forward to a time where we... Collectively, as it were, as a church, our I, as a pastor, who must give an account before God, will stand before Jesus. And the goal is to please Him. And verse 10 has both a negative and a positive aspect to it. We'll receive the good and the bad done in the body. I focused, I did a message on this some time ago, and I focused at that time, a good bit on the potential negative. In closing, I want to focus on the potential positive, the good done well in the body. And I hope it will serve as a motivation for you as it must for me. I'm going to stand before Jesus. My goal is to please Jesus. And I want the positive verdict. I want the positive outcome of hearing from the one who died for me Well done, good and faithful servant. And so friends, brothers and sisters, is that what you desire? If you desire that, it'll shape the way you go about the here and now. If you want that in the future, it'll change the way you live in the present. If we're honest with ourselves, we get allured and dazzled by the things of the world. That's why there are 550 verses in your Bible about heaven, 550, to remind you that this is not your home. And so we're going to bow before the Lord, and we're going to recommit ourselves then to being his servants and to longing for heaven and his presence and pleasing him. Let's go before the Lord.